Okay, hello everyone and welcome to the UK Wildlife Podcast. I'm Victoria Hillman. And I'm Neil Phillips. And this week we've actually got something a little bit different. So we're actually going to go through some wildlife news, what we've been seeing uh, as as normal. And then we've got a really good interview uh, a little bit later. So uh, I think we'll kick off with, should we kick off with the sightings so far, what we've been seeing this week? Because I think there's some interesting stuff, isn't there, Neil? Yeah, I've had a couple of days out. I went to Lackford Lakes, Suffolk Wildlife Trust Reserve, in the middle of Suffolk, roughly. And I went there to have a look at the infamous kingfishers, I suppose you could describe them as. And of course, I missed them by 10 minutes. And then when they came back, it perched on the other side of the bush where I couldn't get photos and blah, 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 the usual excuses. I didn't get any good pictures of them. I did see it catch a fish, which was nice, and glimpsed a water owl. So it's, it wasn't, you know, it's never a waste sitting in a nice hide like that. And me and my friend, uh, Daniel Bridge, you can find him online, Daniel Bridge Photo Tuition, I think he is. Have a look for him. Good photographer, not, good mate of mine. He uh, came with me and we decided to head down to what's called the Nuthatch Stump because if you put a bit of seed down, a nuthatch comes down. And we got a few pictures there and some nice marsh tits. But the highlight for me today was the log next, next door to this stump and there was three bank voles running around and if you check my twitter out you can see a, li- a picture of one poking its head out between the logs I, as well i've seen that it's actually a very cute picture you need to it go is. and check it out you missed that i don't do cute pictures and i've done it again yeah you there have it is a cute picture neil you've done it yeah, it's a very cute it picture yeah uh, i've disgraced myself but <laughs> um the highlight of the week wildlife for me the voles are good was i was setting up a hide and i felt started feeling a bit warm this was on tuesday i think so it would have been the 21st i believe before going to have a look at the lizard hibernaculum optimistically thinking there might be one poking its head out or something couldn't see any it was about to turn around and in the corner of my eye i could see a lizard basking right in the open on a log uh, so i've got some nice pictures you can see it, one of them on my twitter again a lizard in january that is the earliest i've ever had one it's not unheard of but they are cold tolerant species obviously the vivaporous lizards as we meant to call them uh, a common lizard to most people but yeah yeah it's still, it's still early though uh, especially exactly. given how cold it's been as well yeah, I, mean, I don't frost- know about you but certainly here you know we've had a uh, what three or four days of really cold weather it was a frosty morning and there were still bits of frost in some of the shadows but it was so warm in the sun um, it decided to come out so it must i think it's hibernating under that pile of logs so i was going to move some of them around but i'm not going to touch them at all now um, I wasn't going to touch hibernaculum. This was the basket mm. logs, but um, yeah, I'm going to leave them be. I'll, I'll just put some more in somewhere else rather than move those, I think. But uh, yeah, I didn't expect to be start my reptile photography. <laughs> no, <laughs> so not soon. not in mid-January. That's, no. that's That is really early, actually. Yeah. That, that's mean, very normally early. Normally it's the common frogs you start your um, reptiles and amphibian photography with, but uh, not this year. No, nice surprise, that's... a nice surprise. Well, what about you? Have you seen anything? Um, I'm I'm still not really out and about that much, but been keeping an eye on what's been going on in my garden. Um, no sign of my frogs yet in the pond. I will say that, but we live quite high up on the hill, so it's the pond's yeah. been had a layer of ice on it. Um, but I have a cheeky magpie that has been burying numerous stuff in my garden. Um, I haven't yet gone out to find out what it is that he's burying or she's burying. Um, but yeah, there's probably been at least two or three times a day about three or four days they're burying stuff in my back garden in the lawn so that could be interesting come later on in the year um, <laughs> sort of plants growing. Just start, um you know sprouting up everywhere 
and actually saw our, our friendly neighborhood rat again um, oh, for the first time. And I mean, she, she's in very good condition. Um, I hadn't actually seen her since last year. I believe that she actually had young and kind of know why she's she's visiting the area because a neighbor a few doors down, they they feed the birds, which is great, you know, all for that. Um, but they have a lot of feeders and a lot of that food actually goes on the floor and the rats kind of making the most of that. So, I mean, she just uses our garden as a quite literally as a rat run because she just comes through between the gardens. But, you know, she, she's there. We, we've got fields out the back of us. Um, so I don't I don't see that she's really causing any problems. Lots of little birds as well. Um, there's a lot of a um, lot of blue tits and great tits, actually, over the last few days yeah, in I've, the garden I've, I've... and. The feeder, um, at, yeah, I've for my feeder at work, I've been topping it up twice a day, full of small birds, amazing. What was really interesting is because our, our, we only have a little pond and the birds use it as a bird bath until the frogs spawn in it and then it gets netted and they're not allowed to go anywhere near it because the <laughs> frogs come first. Um, but take it that, really, birds. It was really interesting just watching the birds almost wait and take their turn to you to actually have a bathe in it so there would be one bird having a bathe and mm. there'd be another one sitting on on the pebbles around the outside of the pond another one and they would actually it was like a queue it was really i, I sat there and watched it for about an hour it was yeah. amazing and it was like you wouldn't get two in the water at any one time but they would actually just wait their turn which i thought was i've never seen that before pecking order Probably yeah, quite pre- literally isn't it yeah quite literally um i mean the the blackbirds got first dibs and then oh, we yeah. had robins oh that's good so moving on to podcast news so we're up to episode six which is pretty good we're still going uh we've had 1306 downloads is the latest total which is rather pleasing so thank you to everyone that's downloaded in fact the last episode has had over 300 downloads alone so that's pretty wow. good I think that's absolutely amazing you know we we've we've only well like i said we've only done what six episodes so far and you know it's, it's it's still pretty new so to have that many downloads is absolutely fantastic um i've actually got a little bit of news for you as well neil yes we have a hundred followers now on twitter Woo-hee. um we've actually it was 99 earlier today and i nearly put something out said who's going to be our hundredth follower and it. and somebody's done it and we've and got 242 on facebook so th- big thank you to everyone um mm. who's kind of interacting with us as well and please please do share the podcast i think uh a bit of words getting around words get talking of words getting around uh bbc wildlife magazine we have a little review in it i haven't actually read it yet i need to read it actually would I'm you like me to read would you like me to read it to you oh go on then should we read it, it i'll Come read on. it hang on let me guess uh neil is very annoying victoria is really good she should find a better co-host <laughs> here we go here we go yep. so the uk wildlife podcast In each episode of this new podcast, photographers Victoria Hillman and Neil Phillips discuss their sightings and latest wildlife news and examine a topic or two in detail, such as migratory animals and engaging adults with nature. Listening to them feels like being in a cafe, gossiping about wildlife with friends, along with the occasional tangents and rants that naturally come with such a chat. (laughs) It's very easy to listen to, though occasionally complete beginners may struggle to follow when species names are shortened. So I think that's actually a really lovely review um that's good so there we go so thank you very much to bbc wildlife uh, magazine yeah. for we, did, we didn't even pay them for that that's pretty good no. 
Um, but oh, a big brilliant. thank you to them for popping that in. Oh, that's yes, really definitely. It was, uh, yeah, that was great. So. Excellent. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, that's, that's the podcast news. We, we're going to keep the rest of it short because the interview is quite nice and long. We'll talk more about that in a second. We've got a couple of news stories we want to cover. This is the UK Wildlife News. Question oh, is, what are we, we going to start with? Do you want to go first yeah. with one of yours? <laughs> yeah, let's. I think we've got to start with the sea eagle. We, we've mentioned previously, I think it was possibly even the first episode, wasn't it? We mentioned the sea eagle release on the Isle of Wight, which is fabulous. Oh, yeah, it could have been. Yeah, it could have um, been right back in that first episode. And I think it was six juveniles released. One, unfortunately, has gone missing or, or was found dead, I think. One has turned up in Oxfordshire where it is hanging out with the red kites now if you've seen a red kite you'll know they, they look quite big they're all wing there's not actually much to the body but they look quite big when they're flying they're, they're you know they're bigger than a buzzard but i can imagine a sea eagle must stand out with its eight foot wingspan and it's right next to the m40 apparently where it is but not many people have seen it someone made the point online can you imagine the, the, the poor bloke driving down the m40 looks up and goes I've just seen an eagle and everyone just goes, yeah, right, whatever. It's just a buzzard. <laughs> I wonder if anyone has actually done that. I guess if, if they don't know it's there. But apparently it's scavenging. It's learned from the red kite. So it thinks it's a big red kite from its place. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> just, imagine that. You, you're driving down a country lane. Oh, it's a red kite. Oh, my God. What does <laughs> great pterosaur-sized thing comes down? So should we move on to your story? Yeah, well, if I do... Um... Obviously, something that has been in the news a lot this week uh, is about HS2 um, and the damage and destruction that it can, well, I would say potentially, but would cause mm. to a lot of UK wildlife sites. And again, it's another, it's another story we're not going to cover in detail right now, but we thought we would just touch on it and just mention it. Um, so I've just pulled out a couple of points um, from some of the reports I've read. Um, and it, it's basically, it's going to destroy or irreparably damage five internationally protected wildlife sites 693 local sites 108 ancient woodlands and 33 legally protected sites of special scientific interest so you know there's just a bit of food for thought there and on top of that in some places it will endanger wildlife such as willow tit, white clawed crayfish and dinghy skipper butterfly, putting them at risk of local extinction. Barnell Trust have objected to it as well, haven't they? And the Wildlife Trust. Yeah, yeah. Really, I mean, when you look into it, it's something I think needs to be stopped. But there's there's a lot of news out there, some of it truthful, hmm. some of it bending the truth as always. I mean, but there, there's a lot out there that you can read on it. Um, so we said so we, we would only just kind of mention it yeah. because it is a it's, it's probably one of our biggest wildlife stories this week and i think i'll end the news with a happier story um it starts rather sadly there was two common dolphins seen off a nature reserve very close to me and uh, one i know well Thameside nature reserve it's well i've trust uh, which is just to the east of tilbury two common dolphins were seen stranded on the mud there and the thames it's part of the thames estuary and there must be, oh, it must go out half a mile, a mile at low tide. And these dolphins were stuck in the middle of it. Um, a bird alerted, I believe he alerted this as well, I've trusted, then contacted various people. And the British Divers Marine Life Rescue Group, who I believe are all volunteers, they went out there and met with the RNLI from Southend, um, who have a hovercraft, because down here, <laughs> if you had a boat, it'd be completely useless, people getting stuck in the mud. So they have a hovercraft uh, rescue vehicle. I believe the, the fire brigade as well all got together, worked out a plan, went out on the hovercraft, they assessed the dolphins. They obviously needed help because um, cetaceans aren't designed to support their body weight on land. Um, they gave a quick assessment. 
uh, worked out a plan, got them on some tarpaulins, got them on the hovercraft and took them one at a time over to the water as the tide was coming in because it was going to be a few hours and they might not have survived. Checked them over again, made sure they were okay and had recovered from the ordeal and let them go and they swam off seemingly healthy and happy. So And nobody, they haven't stranded again. That's that's always the danger of these things. So fingers crossed, just like Benny Beluga, who also turned up in the Thames a couple of years ago, Another happy station tale. Fingers yeah. crossed. Um, Fingers we won't crossed see, we well. won't hear from them again. Hopefully, yeah. but because they're, um, they're I believe they're quite oceanic uh, common dolphins. So they are. Yeah, they wouldn't normally get them that close in. No, which yeah, is uh, yeah. So a bit of a happy story there. Yeah. A happy and, ending. Um, and I just, got... I, just, I just want to quickly say hats off to the BDLMLR, um, RNLI, and uh, and the surprise service, of course, who are doing such a good job. Yeah, this is great. Great for everyone to work together. To, yeah. to rescue those dolphins and get them back out and we just got a couple of quick things just touching on again we we are probably going to cover this in a lot more detail in a few weeks when we talk about frogs and toads and have a, a special guest on at that point but over the last week certainly before we had the cold snap the reports of um, toads emerging and starting their migrations are already coming in um, there's already been reports from hampshire i believe and a few other places where toads are already on the move which is early. We wouldn't normally see them no. moving this early. And also, you know, obviously a lot of reports and a lot of photographs coming in of snowdrops out. And I'm just going to mention this really quickly because I've actually spoken to quite a lot of people about it and, you know, when they've asked questions. So a lot of the snowdrops are actually currently out and in full flower. Um, I think, Neil, you've got some in full flower in your garden. They're actually cultivated snowdrops, so they're not wild snowdrops so a lot of the ones we're seeing they're in churchyards they're in gardens um, they've been planted they're cultivated and generally speaking those snowdrops come out you know very much earlier than our wild ones I mean the ones you know I've seen them out in in gardens for probably about a couple of weeks now the the wild ones and yeah I've got a few patches around here where they're they are wild snowdrops um, they they still won't be out yet they won't be out and, f- and flowering fully still for another few weeks so yes it's early to see some of these things come out but you have to be aware that you know some of the ones that are coming out now if they're cultivated it doesn't really help us kind of gauge as much you know how much things are changing in the wild I mean, it's great to see them and it's lovely to see all the photos but you know that's why we're seeing a lot of snowdrops at the moment they they are the cultivated ones and they generally normally come out a good couple of weeks before the wild ones anyway yeah, they've basically been cultivated to come out earlier, haven't they? So Yeah. I'll, I'll quickly mention a couple of snowdrop facts that I know. Number one is they're not native to UK. Well, most people say they aren't. It's a, like a lot of these native things, it's a, a bit, a little bit of a debate there. And my favourite fact I found out recently is they can produce heat from the flower bud. So that's how they can grow through the snow. So if you get a layer of snow, they will melt their way through and then they flower above it, which I thought was a rather cool adaptation to flowering winter, really, isn't it? So. That is. And not not to forget the fact they actually have antifreeze um, proteins mm. in them so that they can actually. And that's why if you see snowdrops out and they're in full flower and then you get, you know, a covering of snow, they look all they kind of all shrivel and they look like they're not going to survive. And once the snow has gone and sun comes out, it's like nothing happened. Absolutely yeah. amazing. Um, and the name actually comes, it means, I think it's milk flower of the snow. It comes from oh. the Greek. I took the scientific name. Galanthius nivalis. Oh, very good. I knew it was Galanthius, but I didn't know what the second bit was. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, it's quite a lot. Of, actually, I put quite a lot of those facts in my book. That's oh, why I, I wondered did, yeah. if you if you were 
We're just going to pull them out of the book. <laughs> uh, I should have. Uh, it's upstairs. I'm watching my copy. But, uh, yes, buy Victoria's book. Um, yeah. Yes. Now on to the main event, which is our interview with Adrian Thomas from the RSPB. He very kindly come in his own time, gave us an interview. He'd been interviewed by the BBC and everybody. All the, all the important people tomorrow. So I'm very appreciative of him giving up his time. So he's worked for the RSPB for 20 years. He's been a champion of wildlife-friendly gardening. He's, he's, as you'll hear in the interview, he's an obsession of his. He's also written some books on wildlife gardening, on birdsong. Um, and he works as sort of a project leader at the RSVB on quite a variety of projects, which we'll cover, actually cover in the interview. But the main reason to get him on was for the Big Garden Bird Watch, which takes place this weekend. So... Here is Adrian. Unfortunately, due to technical problems, Victoria couldn't join us in the interview, but enjoy. Hello, Adrian. Um, thanks for joining us today. Pleasure, Neil. Good to speak to you. Um, now, uh, Adrian is here today. Uh, he works for the RSVB and he's here to talk to us mainly about the Big Garden Bird Watch, which will be taking place this weekend. Uh, you're right. It's this weekend as I quickly flick up to yeah. see the dates. 25th to 27th. It used to always be a Saturday and Sunday. Yeah. And now it's Saturday, Sunday or Monday that you can choose. Oh, that's brilliant. Oh, that extra day. That's quite handy for some of us. People that work at weekends and stuff. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Oh, well, can you explain what it is? Well, put simply, it is the largest bird survey in the world. I think that most people who've got any interest in birds will have heard of it because yeah, it, it gets across the news every year, which is really brilliant because it, it brings nature to the forefront. Um, it's been running since 1979. It started as a kids survey with Blue Peter and the RSPB joining forces to do it. And then it just grew and grew to the point where over the past few years, around about half a million people take part each year. They just take one hour out of their weekend to sit with a nice cup of tea, looking out the window and count the maximum number of each species of bird that they see during that hour. That's the critical thing, that they don't do a cumulative count, but they count the maximum that they see at any one point during that hour. And what that then does is it gives us this instant snapshot, really, of how well our garden birds are faring. Uh, uh, and because there are so many people taking part, then it really is effective because we can see it at a national level. We can see it at a county level uh, and even see it at a city level. Some of the cities pull out their own results to find out how, how cities are doing. And it's the survey that, for instance, was one of the first things to spot the decline in the song thrush. And we've been able to spot the ongoing decline of starling, but things like goldfinches coming up in numbers. So. What, what a wonderful way of engaging a lot of people, getting them into wildlife for the first time and in doing so producing some really valuable science. Yeah, it's, it's a win-win-win basically, isn't it? I've been a fan of the uh, bird watch. I do it most years. I'm hoping to do it with my little girl for the first time. She's nearly four. So whether I get to sit there the whole um, hour, I doubt, but I might get there for some of it. Um, I do have fond memories as a kid seeing a tree creeper in my great aunt's garden, which was for the first time, I believe, which was a rather nice tick to get. Oh, fabulous. Um, and that, that's it. It's a formative yeah. thing for, for many people, isn't it? And I, I do speak to like some serious birds who go, well, it's it's not your proper science, is it? But it's a way in for so many people. Yeah. And I urge even serious birders to do it just so that it enthuses and inspires other yeah. people to do likewise. Yeah, grab the kids, grab the gang, grandkids, or you know, even if they're grown kids, grab them, get them to sit down for an hour. It's a nice, nice relaxing thing to do. So if people want to join in, if you're doing it next year, we, we're doing this podcast a bit late for this. I know you can get packs with the posts, but is there? can they still join in okay if they haven't got a pack? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, most people these days submit their results online and that allows us to turn around the results really quickly. But if people have still uh, want to do it by post, then we can still receive those results that way. But it's really easy to, to put all your results down the moment you've finished your hour. Um, how, how do they sign up for this? Well, the best it, way? In a way, it's it's not really a sign-up thing. Yeah. It's, it's there at rspb.org.uk slash birdwatch. And that, that's the place that you need to go. You can find all the instructions. Anybody who's a little bit unsure about some of the birds that they're seeing, well, there's some helpful guides on there as well. All the instructions about how to take part. In, but it's so simple that hopefully most, most folk won't need that. Um, little stories about what's taking place. And obviously on social media, there's a lot of stories that pour in over the weekend of things that people have seen. And, and sometimes they see really unusual stuff. Mm. You know, if, it, if it's a waxwing year, then we find out about waxwings that probably haven't been found by anybody else. Oh, wow. And, uh, I remember a few years ago, people getting excited about getting red kites, but I imagine uh, people in Oxfordshire in certain areas, it's probably a daily occurrence, isn't it now? Uh, it, it is. And, and it's, a, it's a really good point you raising that, actually, because one of the, the key things is that what we want are birds that actually land in people's gardens, mm. not the accidental flyovers. Now, there are some people for whom a red kite will dip down onto the lawn and pick up some some scraps. But if it's just like some goals flying over, well, they're going somewhere else. They're not to do yeah. with your garden. So it's it's the landings that we want. Yeah, only if they touch down. Yeah. <laughs> Is there there's a related program? But is is it the school watch or something? They get school groups to do similar thing. Yeah, absolutely. The big schools bird watch, and there's a much longer time period for them to do that over. And the results are collated separately from the big garden bird watch, and quite rightly so, because what you find in the big schools bird watch is there are a lot of black-headed gulls and pied wagtails, yes. much <laughs> higher up the charts. Yeah, I can imagine that. Perfect habitat for wagtails, a nice big concrete playground. Yeah, and all, all the crisps that have been dropped during break time. Some people online will have probably seen that we had some technical problems when we attempted this on Tuesday. But you told me on that night you were about to go and see some, shall we say, a group of very important people and show them around St James's Park for a bird watch. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, that was really good fun. It was a group of MPs. Well, we, we sent out the invitation to all MPs to see if they wanted to come along. I'm really pleased with the turnout. I think it was over a dozen MPs came for an early morning, half past eight, walked around St James's Park because what, one, one of the reasons for doing it in a park was that we recognised that there are some people who don't have a garden, and but we still want them to be able to take part in the Big Garden Bird Watch. So we... we offer it for folk to go into their local green space and count the birds that you see. Now, the MPs were really interested about all the, the ducks and uh, swans and gulls that are on the water, but we were focusing on looking for the, the smaller birds, the garden birds that are around St. James's Park, and it was really quite telling. It was lovely to see their level of interest. It was MPs from all political parties who came along and really had a good old chat about wildlife, the problems that it faces, and with things such as Environment Bill and all of the issue to do with climate change all hot on the agenda, then it was a chance to talk about all of those things as well. We saw some really interesting stuff. So there were long-tailed tits out there in St. James's Park. Nice. Uh, but it's the things that weren't there that I think are most telling. And, and to be able to uh, explain to the MPs that as a very small child, I was taken to St. James's Park. Uh, it was my only trip to London because I never left Worcestershire. <laughs> um, 
And the only thing I can remember two things. One was the train. That was exciting. And the second thing was in St. James's Park. You held out your arms and sparrows lined up from fingertip to fingertip across across your arms. And that was such a formative memory for me. Do that in St. James's Park today. And of course, not a single sparrow to be seen. No sparrows in the park. Didn't see any starlings in the park. And it it's those missing birds, isn't it? Um, and it's that risk of this shifting baseline that I remember those house sparrows, but people going to St. James's Park these days will remember probably the parakeets, but won't realise that the park used to be awash with house sparrows. They used to breed in the in the iron uh, gates of Buckingham Palace. Um, yeah. It's it's astonishing to think what's happened in a generation. It is. I mean, the sparrows have disappeared from my hometown and I, I read the blog of Tony Duckett, who is one of the Royal Parks wildlife rangers. He was Regent's Park at one point. And he said on his blog, one year he had more hoopoos in Regent's Park than he had house sparrow records. Not <laughs> including London Zoo, where there's obviously the only surviving colony. Not captive, of course. They're actually wild in the zoo. I think I think that's what he said. He, he When he finally saw one, it's the first one, I can't think it was his garden or Regent's Park. Park. This is a man that spends all his time in London, birding basically and working around the wildlife. And he's first sparrow saw for two years outside London's grounds. And the ones that end up in Regent's Park are just wandered out. I suppose if you hold arms out in park now, you're more likely to get a parakeet land in it, aren't you? I did. Oh, you did. I did, I did this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but th- this is where the the big garden birds. I know we've got the fabulous stuff that comes through from the breeding bird survey from from the BTO. But here we've got this midwinter snapshot yeah. and this, this little signal that house sparrows might be turning the corner. Uh, so those in Wales, those in Scotland, those in Northern Ireland, really strong upturn. It's not that they're back up to the original levels, but the the graph isn't pointing downwards anymore. And I should be really fascinated come April when the, the Big Garden Birdwatch results come out to see well how well house sparrows are, are doing. I think we may see more of an uplift. That's my crystal ball prediction. The things I'm worried about, a chaffinch, Yes. That really does seem on the slide. It seems to be following in the footsteps of, of Greenfinch. And I am intrigued about what's happening with Collard Dove. And I, I have a suspicion that Collard Dove may be down again in this year's Big Garden Birdwatch. That's interesting. Wood pigeon may be on the rise. Is that what the problem is with Collard Dove? Or is it a disease issue it's, again? But It's funny. I, I was just thinking to myself, I've seen more wood pigeons than Collard Doves recently although um i'm spending a bit more time in more rural areas where there are obviously the wood pigeons are there's huge flocks of them in the fields i mean i seem to remember reading that birds that have learned to use feeders recently so the goldfinch was the classic one but more recently the long-tailed tit is that yeah. correct that's that's yeah yeah is, isn't it yeah they it has because yeah. i remember then the, the thing that was i never go on feeders and even the ones in my garden until this winter never went on the feeders and i've seen them on the fat balls and the peanuts recently they, they just seem to be all changing their habits but you can see why the the pressure on them to eat bird food when there's a lack of na- natural food must be quite high and of course the the, the really intriguing one is the black cap mm. wintering in the uk starting to use fat feeders which for an insect eater oh, was like cool. really curious and now there's been this research that black caps that winter in the uk have evolved to have longer bills than the the spring migrant black caps that we see and it's thought <laughs> to be because of the use of bird feeders evolution in our time 
I had seen a there's a paper haven't they done it with um I believe great tits and a couple other species they've shown have got longer beaks now to get into the peanuts in the feeders. Yeah, so, yeah imagine what it's gonna be like in two hundred years time we're gonna have these kind of curly <laughs> build small birds in our garden. That'd be pretty cool. Although unfortunately we might not have any curlews by that point as well. Yeah, rather, yeah, yeah. Rather depressing uh, spin on that. All right. Well, talking of um bird feeders and things like that, I believe you do did you write a book on gardening for wildlife? I I did indeed, yeah. yeah. Uh, my my day job with the RSPB is really, really varied and I do all sorts of things setting up new nature reserves and um and running campaigns to try and save things like the nightingale. But my passion outside of work has, has for a long time been what can you do in your back garden to make it fit for wildlife? And um, yeah, it's it's turned into, let's call it an obsession. Why not? Eh? Uh, it, I spend a lot of time writing about it, giving talks about it. Um, and more than anything, I love to get out there and, and do it and experiment in my garden as to what can I do that makes it better for wildlife? So yeah, it's... Um, it's a real passion. I'm going to nip in first and suggest that a pond is the best thing you can do. But could you give any uh, quick tips of what people could do, what the best <laughs> things are? A, a pond would be right up there in my yeah. top three. And it would depend on which day I, I got up as to whether it be number one or two or three. Mm. Uh, plants is right up there. Yeah. Filling a garden with, with plants, whether that be trees, bushes, shrubs, flowers, it's just because it's the bedrock of so much of life because because when you've got a pond as well a, an empty pond is, is nothing compared to a pond that's got plants in it um so um which is beautiful for many people who like gardening because it's kind of permission to grow as much as you yeah. want and you only have to think think about how many front gardens have been paved over these days that that trend for decking that came through about 20 years oh, ago no. seemed to persist all of that into so much wildlife habitat and when you look at how many gardens there are out there well the rspb has got around about 140,000 hectares of nature reserve in the uk and we've been collecting those for like 80 years or so yeah. the area of gardens compared to that 140,000 hectares is thought to be around about 490,000 hectares so it's over three and a half times the area of RSPB nature is reserves. Now, gardens aren't going to have bitterns and skylarks and things like that. But what what gardens do have, there's been this real shift in understanding from maybe 50 years ago. There's, there's a famous quote from an ecologist who, who says, said that gardens for wildlife are effectively a desert. And that was because nobody had looked in gardens <laughs> to find out what was there. And there was this seminal study done by an amazing woman called Jennifer Owen in, in Leicestershire. She just had a kind of bog standard suburban garden, got a bit of a veg patch, bit of a flower patch, bit of a lawn, but it's just your average size garden. And in it, she found over 2,600 different species of wildlife. And intriguingly, uh, I think it was four of them were new to the UK. <laughs> One of them was new to science. Oh, Unbelievable. I think it was QI. They put the old, you know, where's the most new species found? And everyone was saying the rainforest or the oceans. And it is people's backyards because the experts go out there, look in their own yard and go, hmm, that's new. I can't identify that. And, and that's how they get them, I believe. I think one of the, t the top square for spiders in the UK is one of the local county recorders in his garden. <laughs> yeah, it's, I can well imagine. Yeah, I've... It is remarkable. It's amazing what you can get in your garden. The highlights for me is probably I had a wall brown butterfly, which in the southeast has declined massively. And there's a little colony, well, I say little colony, in, in my area of South Essex, um, around sort of Tilbury up to Basildon, Canvey area. 
and are they like brownfield sites and so gardens are sort of a brownfield site in a way i suppose and yeah i couldn't believe it when i had one sitting in my garden but you can get sparrowhawks and you start getting anti-invertebrates and there's all sorts of wonders to be had in your garden yeah 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 uh, I, I'm, I'm not trying to trump you here kind of, <laughs> whatsoever, but um, last year I put in the start of what I call my scree garden and was able to plant some um, kidney vetch into it. And I couldn't believe it. I had egg laying small blue butterfly on the wow. kidney vetch. Now I'd, I'd put it in, I'd put the kidney vetch in mm. with this kind of like, this is for the small blues. Yeah. But of course, never really believing it because the closest colony to me is probably at least two miles away. And yet year one of growing yeah. kidney vetch and I had small blue in it. And that that's really uh, inspired me to expand that area of, of kidney vetch. Yeah. If I can have uh, a self-sustaining population of small blue butterflies, one, one of our rarer wow. butterfly species in the garden, that would be so amazing. But that is Oh, I wonder if, how many people have got them in their garden. Probably. Well, you never know. There's lots of people that don't look very hard in their garden, might have some incredibly rare things, and they just. Would, people haven't looked. I've got a snail, uh, some um, non native thing that's only been found on four sites in Essex, which was, was quite nice. But again, <laughs> probably because nobody's looked for them. They're probably in loads of gardens. Probably whatever garden centre the previous owners bought the plant from, everyone else that's bought one from there has probably got them as well. D- digging a pond, I find is best thing i'm obviously biased because i love dragonflies frogs and amphibians generally and pond creatures generally think of the hours i spent as a kid looking in a pond it's it's just so relaxing if you just get get a bit of wildlife flying around your garden you can sit there have a drink in your hand a nice warm day it just it just sells it to me even if you're not into wildlife it is quite relaxing you have your own little oasis Leave a corner un, unkept is, is the other thing I've been hearing recently. In fact, I believe there's a campaign to not mow your lawn at all, which I'm all for. Uh, there, there is, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm really big into turning your lawn into a meadow. If you went back like 15, 20 years when, when I really started getting into this, it was kind of seen as the holy grail of turning your lawn into a meadow, but a holy grail in terms of the fact that if you try it, it's really difficult and mm. you probably won't be successful. And uh, I like to think that times are changing. It's a case of it doesn't matter if you don't produce the most perfect hay meadow that's ever been in your in your back garden. It doesn't matter if you don't have orchids coming up in it. But just by either just leaving the mower in the shed for a while and letting the lawn do its thing, it's amazing what has been waiting there to, fl- to flower and you've been chopping the tops off. Um, all of these these years but then with just a little bit of scarifying throwing some yellow rattleseed on in the autumn that then comes up and, and sucks out some of the the energy out of the grasses and allows the other flowers to flourish well I'm, I'm trying it on a, a patch of lawn straight outside my, my back door it's kind of like your postage stamp bit of lawn that many people have in their garden I'm, I'm really really fortunate I've got an acre of garden but it means I can do these little tests in little parts of the garden mm. and so I actually laid um, commercial turf to then see how long it would take me to turn Ooh. completely ryegrass dominated commercial turf into a meadow so I'm in in year two now I've got my yellow rattle down last year I had things like bird's foot trefoil come up nice. uh, cowslip come up um, I had the first grasshoppers come in there I had small skipper in there in something that is only one year on <laughs> from being fresh turf uh, laid off the roll but one thing I did find, and someone suggested, for people, if you've got to sell it to, say, your other half or some someone else that co-owns a lawn, they said uh, completely take out the turf and sow it 
as a meadow. So put a bit of cornflour mix down for the first year and then have, you know, the, and make sure you avoid a, whatever mix suits your soil type, if it's clay or sandy. And that actually worked quite well. I had quite a nice little patch of flowers for a while and everyone likes poppies. So uh, get some poppies in there and it, it tends to sell it to people. I don't know if you found similar or... I do. I think I think the only problem is that people love that first year when the mm. cornfield annuals come through. So you get the corn cockle and the, as you say, the corn poppy, the the the, the common poppy. And you, so you get yellows and whites and reds and blues in mm. there. And then the next year, because those are just annuals, and if if you yeah. want to perpetuate those annuals, you have to cultivate the soil again mm. and re-sow again. Um, whereas if you're looking for a true meadow, because meadow comes from the word yeah. meaning to to mow, it's it is uh, it is a hay meadow. It's something that that is managed by cutting. Then it loses some of that colour. And there was a, a a lovely old guy called John Gould that I went to see who had adopted his local verge down in Dorset. And in year one, he sowed his wild, uh, true wildflower meadow mix with the grasses in there. Mm. But in amongst the seed mix was all the poppies. And so year one, the people of the village loved it because it was this mass of, of, of red. And year two, they were going, what's gone wrong? What's gone wrong? And oh, of course, yeah. nothing had gone wrong. And of course, by year two, year three, as the grasses came through and the perennials came through, it actually became better for wildlife because you suddenly got the common blue butterflies and the marbled white butterflies breeding in a true meadow um but john to his absolute credit he he got his notice boards up his little handwritten notice boards to explain to folk what he'd done and wouldn't be fab if like everybody did either something in their back garden or adopt adopt a little local patch and just did something it doesn't have to be perfect you just have to put a, a little bit of knowledge in you know, if, if you want common blue butterflies, you need to know that you need to put bird's foot trefoil in. And I do think, you know, that 16 million gardens out there, well, 8 million of them surely could put a little bit of bird's foot trefoil in their front lawn or their back lawn. Yeah. And we could have common blues everywhere. Even if it's a couple of square metres in every garden, it it makes such a difference. It really would. I, mean... I, tell, you, I tell you what my dad had to do, uh, because he'd been brought with like, victorian style bedding and square edges mm. and everything in order f- to um accept letting the lawn grow long he had to mow straight edges i was going to mention that yeah patch. something i used to my dad always taught me we used to i used to help him do some gardening occasionally and cause he used to do some the old gardening job was as long as you put a straight edge it looks neat and even if the grass is growing overgrowing and all that kind of stuff it still looks neat weirdly yeah. it's weird it's just the way the human brain works i've always said that with these grass verges if they just mowed the edges you know either side the path for a foot or two most people would be happy yeah 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 it, there's there's just so many little bits we could do here and there i think it just help immensely but like i say it's important to have the grass in with the wildflowers there was that when last year it sort of became fashionable didn't it for some of the councils to put in wildflower mixes and they'd use non-native cornfield mix that like we're talking about but there'd be no grasses in there, so the adult bees and well, the bees would be happy, and the adult butterflies are happy. It, but they wouldn't be able to breed because there's no food plant for them, like the trefoil and the and the grasses in many cases. And I think is it marble whites and the skippers? I believe the caterpillars eat the grass from memory. And the browns, the meadow browns, and the meadows browns, keepers, and burn your, your wool brown, wool brown, yeah, and burn it moth, I believe, as well. The day flying. Is- Birds for trefoil for them. Oh, so, it's a for trefoil yeah, as well. put, right. put, that, put that in for your common blue, and you'll get your oh, yeah. your burnet moths as well. I do like a good burnet moth. Yeah, and yeah. and and that we could well, we could go off a tangent a little bit more with the pulling of ragwort, which is 
necessary in some places, but when they're doing it mulch from the agriculture, it just winds me up something chronic. <laughs> Especially if you leave it long enough and get a big enough population of cinnabar, it gets pretty much wiped out anyway because the caterpillars eat it all. But, they do um, love a munch on that. They're 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 pretty robust, aren't they, to go munching through something that has oh. got toxins within it. Um, cyanide, yeah. I believe, isn't it? Is it, Is it indeed? Yeah. All oh, right. Okay. Yeah, that yellow and black coloration. That's why I don't eat them. Yeah. Generally, <laughs> <laughs> good idea. Moving on. Well, I think we'll talk a bit about your work maybe a bit later. This uh, you've done another book on bird song. Would you like? You can mention that as well. That'd be quite. Oh, good. thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The RSPB Guide to Bird Song uh, came out last April, and I would say that that is my my other outside of work passion. I think it comes from the fact that that my my, my dad uh, was the volunteer warden of a nature reserve in Worcestershire that had nightingales when I was a little boy. Uh, they'd gone by the time I I'd kind of reached secondary school, but so I remember folk gathering in the kind of dusk in May at the nature reserve and listening in kind of reverential silence to these birds and uh, and no wonder because they really are incredible so I've had my my life all of my kind of birding and nature life has been surrounded by bird song and um, I have been fascinated by it I, I seem to to really get something from there's something that about the sense of place that you get from it the the sense of season you know the yeah. sound of the first field oh, fairs yeah. of the autumn or the sound of the first chiff chaff of spring uh, and and play me a cuckoo and I, I I go delirious over it um so I I wanted to the, I mean there've been products out there in the past and some really brilliant ones but I wanted to get out and record birdsong and then put it into a format in a book and a CD that worked in the kind of way that you might get a foreign language tape so the book and the cd or the book and the digital download kind of work together and you you go through maybe a couple of speeches at a time I, I tell you a bit on the cd about what you're listening for it kind of corresponds with the book where you get a bit more information then you get to test yourself before you move on to the next species and the other thing i wanted to do was give people a bit more vocabulary to use when describing birdsong because if you ask someone to describe a bird visually they'll often be able to tell you a lot about the color and the shape and the size and all of those kind of things but ask people to describe birdsong mm. and they often flounder for the the words to describe it whereas actually if you break birdsong down into how long did the sound last did the pitch go up or down was there a pattern that you could pick out from from the notes um, all of those kind of things I've got seven key attributes that you can listen for and you don't have to listen for all seven in every sound there are some birds where it's it's the volume that's that's really mm -hmm. critical or it, it is the timbre of the sound the the that kind of tonal color of the sound that that's important so that's what, what I wanted to try and convey I've included loads of sonograms in there but I hand drew them all into oh. kind of <laughs> pick out the really salient features because anybody who's visual um mm -hmm. sonograms you know if you look at a sonogram of a reed warbler versus a sedge warbler you can instantly see there is an incredible dis difference between them and yet so often without that to help you people get stuck between the two yeah i, I have to admit i certainly at the start of every season i have to really think what the difference is and when you've got the two close together which sometimes you get you can tell a difference but if you've got one in isolation it can throw you and it doesn't help that the reed warblers don't always stick to the reeds and the sedge warblers don't always stick to the bushes like they're meant to either but yeah. uh, i mean I, i've always liked the bird song it everyone people go i don't know how you do it to me and i'm not that good i'm not sort of pro level but i've for years and it's this sort of 
almost attrition with it, isn't there? You, you start learning certain ones, and that eliminates them, so you can learn the others. But there's all the tricks, and there, there's the yellow hammer. Is is it a little bread and a bit of cheese? A little bread and a bit of cheese. This is a good one. And the one I'll never forget. Um, I'll have to make it child friendly. From what my friend said, was the willow warbler, which was sing, 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 sing. Oh, sod it. <laughs> <laughs> he said it's slightly ruder than that, but um, yeah. Because it, sort of, it sort of sing, 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 and then it that sort of starts to give up and all sort of, basically, isn't it? It's a, I didn't do a very good version of that. <laughs> I might edit that out. <laughs> um, yeah, and and, and the I, United I, one is it? Collar Dove is United. Indeed. United. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I've tried in the book to come up with some new ones of those as well, oh. and, and certainly for some some birds, uh, having those kind of mnemonics really mm. really helps. Um, so. I, I'm, I'm personally quite fond of the, the Chetis warbler, which almost always the male will sing chip, chip shop, chippy chip shop, chippy chip shop. <laughs> oh, that's good. I like that one. Yeah. And and, and usually cause like you go deaf temporarily in whatever ears closest to the bush it's singing in as well. I find Indeed. They yeah. are so yeah. loud. It's between them and the wren, which is the most impossibly loud, I believe. I remember the first time I saw a wren in the open singing, I was looking directly at the wren. And my brain was going, now what's making what birds singing? Because that's far too small. To, and my brain couldn't comprehend this tiny little bird was making such a loud noise. But having worked with children for a while now, I probably could have done it. But um, <laughs> yes. And I think the thing with, with bird song and bird sounds is that uh, if you make the effort to master it, I think you see double what you do if you if you Agreed. haven't. And you see it earlier and you pick out the stuff that's overhead and you don't get lost in woodland and uh, in terms of like what is around me. And um, I, yeah, I just think it opens up both uh, an insight into the birds, but it also opens up that emotional connection with them. And, and I look at how many people these days spend their life outdoors with their earphones in and i oh. think what, what what joy they're missing yeah i never I, I, when people go for a walk in a nature reserve with the earphones in i'll never understand that re really it's i know they're probably trying to focus and you know hit their pace or whatever but in, indeed and it was for the reason that birdsong seems to tap something mm. deep in our psyche that we decided to use it, the RSB decided to use it um, last spring to see if we could um, get birdsong into the British pop charts. I don't know if which you saw that Which is a wonderful happen. way of changing the subject into my next question, which oh. is, could you tell us about the Let Nature Sing single? Oh, you do know about it. Fantastic. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I believe so, I actually bought a copy. I can't remember now. I think I well, did. if you did, you were part of the movement that jettisoned up, us up to number 18 in the pop charts. And uh, I think there can have been very few, I'm going to call it a pop single, uh, yeah. that have been played on radios one two three four five and six oh, yeah. uh, it was to hear it played on the radio one chart show introduced as this is let nature sing from the rspb which is drawing attention to the fact that we've lost 40 million birds from the british landscape in the last 50 years that was what they said on the chart show um and, and that's what it was there to do really which was to draw attention to the nature's crisis effectively but to as wide an audience as possible because so many of us know all about this and yet there is this vast body of, of the public that have been oblivious to it and and cutting through to the point where they go oh that that's a problem that 
now we recognize what all the conservationists are, are going on about um yeah using birdsong to do that and i was i was really privileged to be asked to um to lead on pulling that together i work with sam lee who's the um the uh, folk singer who does all the amazing singing with nightingale stuff amazing guy uh and together we pulled together the, the single and yeah it, it shot there up into the charts and um Brilliant. yeah I, I just want to do an album that's all i want to do oh, that'd be good they're good i mean some people uh, you've explained it why why that sort of thing is important i mean sometimes you get some of the hardcore birders sort of going oh, why are they doing this sort of thing but that's the whole point we can't save everything unless we've got almost, at least most people on board but really you want everyone on board at least partly and then then politicians and such again the walk for the mps will tell with this politicians and such we need to get them on board if you get the people behind something the mps can't ignore it they want to get re-elected they're going to have to listen basically you've worked on quite a lot of projects would you like to tell us about some more of those as well yeah, yeah. Uh, so interesting a little segue there hmm. uh, that, that just sprung to mind i'm currently working and i never thought i'd, I'd say this with with barrett the, the house builders hmm. um we Barrett agreed to try and set a new standard for wildlife friendly housing on one of their developments. And it's a development called Kingsbrook. It's uh, just southeast of Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire. Um, Barrett, to their absolute credit, chose their largest development in the whole of the UK to do it on. Uh, 2,450 homes it'll be when the thing is is complete. And they, that takes uh, in the order of eight to 10 years to complete a development that big. And I'm so proud of what they're incorporating into it. You've got things such as swift bricks and bat bricks and house marting cups, the kind of stuff that you'd expect. But swift bricks are normally really expensive on the market. So Barrett actually ploughed £30,000 in to develop a new, <laughs> cheaper swift brick. That's good. Oh, and it means that to them. this development is going to have 800 swift bricks in it. And it's kind of like, it's just the start. There, there's... Um, hedgehog highways there are wildflower verges there are these sustainable drainage systems where water that pulls off off the houses then percolates into um free draining um tarmac effectively it, it's some um, the water goes through the the, the tarmac stuff yeah and then into these kind of new lakes and pools that are built around the outside. Construction only started in 2016, summer. So we're only three and a half years into construction. But already, um, I mean, there's 500 houses that are they're occupied already. And these, these folk have got pools and um, parks going in all around them, which have already got kingfishers and little egrets. And um, it really is is fantastic what's, what's going on there. Now, what I can't claim is that what's happening at Kingsbrook isn't happening at any, anywhere else it is there's nothing absolutely new happen at kingsbrook but i've never seen everything done in one place yeah. and i've never seen this all done on such a scale and that's what makes kingsbrook a, a trendsetter so it was really encouraged kingsbrook was uh, a case study in the government's 25-year environment plan that came out a couple of years ago and is now really going to get translated hopefully into a, a, a brilliant environment Bill. So it's great to see Kingsbrook used in there to, to tell the story. And in the national planning policy framework, which is what planners have to use to, to guide uh, new developments when they happen, things such as swift bricks and hedgehog highways are now in there as of the last three months. So it's it's beginning to make a, a change. And of course, what, what's happening is that people are 
going to Kingsborough, potential customers, and they're going, hold on a minute, I've got like all of this green space around me and all of these trees and hedges going in. And um, so sales are going wonderfully of, of Kingsbrook, which oh. I accept is part, of, part and parcel of the yeah. thing, really, isn't it? Unfortunately, we have to accept that there's going to be houses built, so you kind of have to... It's kind of a make-the-best-of-it kind of situation, and things like that are going to help. And there is that stat... It's funny you should say that people were saying gardens were wildlife deserts years ago. I believe it's more than one study now has shown that the average the average piece of farmland... There's not slag it off <laughs> unnecessarily the average piece of farmland has less species than a garden and that's not including the plants a big monocultural field which might be built on yes okay it's supplies of food and everything else but we'll skip past that for a minute from a purely wildlife perspective and i've spoken to ecologists that have said this we, we don't like to admit it but <laughs> building on something can actually make it better for wildlife obviously not the big stuff but for the smaller stuff which you know is just as important in my book um it can be better emphasis on the can there because of course if they put one of those great big deckings down <laughs> it's not going to be very good is it and of course now there's the concept of net gain which is of course, gaining great yeah. great credibility so the idea that when housing goes in, in in the future there'll be a requirement that more nature is there as the builders leave than there was when they they came in mm. so there's definite signs in the right direction. Um, I, I saw that uh, another of the housing companies, I think it was Bovis, is doing hedgehog highways now. I'd love them to do all the things that, that Barrett is 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 doing. So, yeah, yeah, I, I'm more than happy to do a big th thumbs up to Barrett and any other developer who is is trying their best to incorporate this stuff. And of course, they are going to respond very much to the demands of the consumer saying that we want that stuff. So I, I feel that these things work the best when the business, the politicians and the public all push in the yeah. same direction. We've all got a part to play in it. Well, they're, they're just the one thing that's given me heart of all the doom and gloom that's been going on recently in various um, conservation things and global warming and climate change is there is, OK, there's lots of small things don't necessarily make up for it, but there's a bit of hope. For example, there was a, I can't remember the name of them, one of the main fence manufacturers. One of the biggest problems with hedgehogs, of course, is on getting from between gardens, like you say, with the hedgehog highways. But the modern design fences had that concrete block at the bottom as opposed yep. to just the wood yep. where the hedgehogs used to be able to dig under it. They actually make a, a concrete block with a hedgehog-sized hole in it, for it and, they, and they sell it at the same price as the other, as the normal ones. They said, look, we're not, we don't want people not buying it because it's more expensive. So everyone just has to put one of those in. And I thought that was a really nice sort of... Just, just simple things like that will make a difference at the end of the day. Yeah, we just need to push people and, and just tell make people aware that we want these things i think is the way forward uh, and I, I love the so so barrett for example i set them the challenge of doing the hedgehog highways but i didn't know how they'd prefer to do it mm -hmm. so they came up with a solution themselves which was you know the, the little drill bits circular drill bits that you like make a hole in a nest mm -hmm. box for the nesting hole well it turns out that barrett's got one that's about 12 centimeters wide so <laughs> they, they just ran that through the bottom of the fence Lovely. it's easy it's like 10 seconds and, and yeah. the hole is made Yes, yeah, so um, you've worked on projects with nature reserves as well, I believe. Yeah, yeah, I have. As you can tell, I, I'm incredibly lucky at the variety of stuff that that I get to do. Um, probably, probably the um, the biggest project was working with the Environment Agency when they realigned the coast 
on, on the south coast, uh, West Sussex, south of Chichester, a place called Medmerry, which uh, came to prominence in, in the birding world because the, the very first year after the hole had been cut in, in the original seawall to allow the, the seawater to flow into effectively a, a big new bay, 380 hectares of, of new bay created, uh, and blackwing stilts came and nested on the little flood alleviation pool on the landward side of of the bank that the EA had been brilliant enough to like take uh, our design for how we wanted that pool to be created with lots of little islands and things in it and um, straight in came the stilts and and avocets and spoonbill is regular on it doesn't breed but is regular on on that as well but you've got this some um, huge area of intertidal habitat that's being created my my job was to work with the agency to uh, design the habitats uh, and in particular to work with the local community because this idea it used to be called um, managed retreat and what a terrible yeah um, terrible term for it isn't it yeah when when what this was doing was creating fabulous new habitat it was removing a system that was just unsustainable the 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 existing sea bank was shingle and the 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 high tides just bashed into Uh, them and and would overtop threatening 360 houses with with flooding whereas the new bank that's in it's inland there's miles of new footpath new cycle path new uh, horse riding routes around it you've got all of this wonderful intertidal habitat in fact medmary um, not only came to prominence uh, it, it breached in 2013 so it's uh six and a half years now since since it breached and we got the stilts in year one but we also got um uh, uh, an invasion of sharks into the oh, new wow. new bay um it was they were the spotted oh i'm gonna forget the name is now. it the um smooth hound that's right yeah yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's one of the rarer species isn't it i believe and it was over a hundred of these in a shoal, all their fins breaking the surface. Oh. Uh, and what what is thought? Oh, was, that was there a viral video of that at one point? There was. Yes, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that was cool. I nearly went down to see that. Yeah. Uh, it it was. Uh, I got to see some of them doing oh. doing their stuff. When I, when I first saw it and saw the the sharks thrashing around in the shallows, I thought, is is there a beached porpoise in there or something? <laughs> um, the there was a little bit of nervousness locally about oh should we should we really be known for being the bay that's got sharks in it but <laughs> once i learned that the um the smooth hound its alternative name is the gummy shark that oh. really soothed people's fears yeah. you know a shark that's called the gummy shark doesn't strike fear into you no no because uh, these bays i know they've done some similar stuff along the essex coast uh, i believe the wildlife trusted one at um, abbott's hall farm and I think they've done something similar at Fingering Ho as well. And they're just amazing fish nurseries. And it, it's like you're saying, it's amazing how quickly they go, right, we'll just revert to salt marsh or the plants start to colonise. And then if you get a tidal surge, it's got across all that salt marsh plants and all go up all those channels. And by the time it hits the wall, it's lost most of its energy. So it's amazing flood defence as well. Yeah. Um, it's just, yeah. I mean, and the sea level is rising. So we have to make space um, when we've got these floods for the water somewhere to go. There's just almost a no-brainer there's all these things suddenly all these things we've been doing in the past to try and fight nature if you work with it it's a lot easier yeah <laughs> it's yeah a lot safer on. You, you get win-wins yeah. all over the place uh, and one of the intriguing things with with medmary is that during its its creation before the breach was made in the seawall mm-hmm. a lot of archaeology was, was uncovered 
on what had been only a year before, two years before, um, ploughed fields of oilseed rape, suddenly this archaeology was uncovered. And right in the path of, of where the breach was made and where the sea came in was um, a, a medieval fish weir showing that this had been intertidal <laughs> like 400 years ago and they'd been using it to catch, catch fish and presumably transported up to Chichester, which would have been the big, big base there. So it was like... Yeah. Well, I know that some people don't like the idea of turning back the clocks, but if turning back, back the clock means we go back to a more sustainable system, then it makes absolute sense in my book. Agreed. Right, well, Adrian, we've been talking for nearly 50 minutes, so I think we'll probably finish up there. But, um, <laughs> yeah. We've covered a nice broad range of topics, a bit of an insight for people of uh, some of the work the RTB do. So just to reiterate for people, if they want to do the Big Garden Birdwatch this weekend, where do they, where would they go? Uh, RSPB website, rspb.org.uk slash birdwatch. Nice and simple. Brilliant. And uh, would you like to give titles of your books that you brought out so people can find yeah, them? Yeah. yeah, I'd love to. RSPB Gardening for Wildlife. Uh, and that's now in its second edition. Make sure you get the second edition because it's got 60 more pages. And uh, the new one out is RSPB Guide to Birdsong, which you can get. It comes with a CD, but you can also get uh, a free digital download of all the CD contents. And you get to hear my voice on it. <laughs> and do you, do you have a Twitter account or a Facebook page or anything you'd like to promote at all or a website of your own? I, I'd love to, but I don't seem to have time for them. Oh, there we go. So we can't follow you on Twitter. Anything, that, that sounds like it'd be quite amazing. But uh, maybe it's something to consider if you, you know, it's only a hundred and something characters every so often on the train, maybe. <laughs> yeah. But uh, sounds like you yeah, have yeah. quite an interesting career. So, well, uh, any following of me, you have to do physically, I'm afraid. All right, right. <laughs> so you tell people to stalk you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Right. Well, um, hopefully, Adrian, we'll, we'll uh, meet in person at some point at Bird Fair or somewhere. Or I'll try and make a point of doing that. Um, but all I can say is thank you so much for joining us. Uh, our first guest on the podcast, hopefully the first of many, and I think we made a good choice for the first one. Pleasure. Thank you so much, mate. Cheers. Thank you very much. Bye. It was great to have Adrian as our first interview. It was a real pleasure to have him on. So thanks again, Adrian. Yeah, it was yeah. a really, really interesting interview. Really, really good. Yeah, really good. A, a good guest to have on. Steve's going to have a lot to live up to when he comes on next month. <laughs> yeah, no pressure, Steve. <laughs> no pressure. Right. Well, I guess we better say hello to any of our new listeners who uh, have seen us in the BBC Wildlife magazine. Um, so hello, and also hello to our, now I suppose we call our regular listeners now, can't yeah. we? Yeah, those of you that have been here from the beginning thank you very much <laughs> yeah, thank you for sticking with us yes um, yeah. But, I hope, yeah. Hope, yeah hope new and old will come back again <laughs> yes but you know big hello and you know big welcome to everybody and you know thanks for thanks for listening and if you've if anyone's got any questions if this is the first time that you've actually listened to us we do really want you to send in your uk wildlife questions and you can actually do that um via our twitter and our facebook pages so if you just search for uk wildlife podcast it will come up on facebook and twitter if if you can ask us a question through twitter if we can just ask you to use the hashtag uk wildlife podcast it makes it easier to to find the questions but do send them in and then we try our very best to answer them in you know the next episode and if you're listening on apple podcasts uh, thanks everyone that's given us positive reviews if you like it please consider giving us a good review if you don't like it, um, don't bother reviewing us. <laughs> <laughs> but no, seriously, reviews are welcome. And we say questions, but if you want to send us stuff, we can give you a shout out. And if you've got some sort of wildlife related news or something you want us to talk about, just uh, give us a shout. 
or a really cool uh, sighting if you've had a really good sighting yeah. please send them in let us know what you're seeing around the country as well because i'm based in somerset neil's yeah. based the other yeah, side but, of the country so you know we're, we're kind of yeah we're, we're seeing stuff in somerset and essex but we'd love to know certainly at this time of year you know what are you seeing what's starting to emerge you know send us in your sightings as well because it'd be great to get a pattern of what's going on across yeah. the uk that'd be really good our next episode i believe we're doing our photography one next aren't we yes so we've got one that's dedicated to wildlife photography um, as yeah. both neil and i do and we've got quite a few interesting things to cover in that but if again yeah. if you've got any questions whether it's technical or otherwise again send them in and we'll get them covered if if we could ask you to send any questions in by the end of january that would be fantastic yes, we can get them together and just gives us time to to put them together yeah and yeah, hopefully so it... we can get a couple of guests on we need to get that sorted yeah we're, we've uh we're plans are in motion we've got i'm lined up a few guests that should be quite good right i guess it's just time to do the standard end of podcast stuff so you can follow us on twitter at uk wildlife pod and facebook if you search for uk wildlife podcast you can find us there my website personal website is www.uk dash as in minus sign wildlife.co.uk and victoria and mine is www.vixpix.com that's v-i-k-s-p-i-c-s and you can kind of find out all what i'm up to um on there as well um, and you can find our twitter and facebook and stuff through them too and i think that's it so uh, thank you very much for tuning in don't forget and... to get involved in the big garden bird watch yes, this yes. weekend it's an hour of your time and those reports are you know absolutely invaluable to finding out what's going on with our garden birds so get involved Sit there and watch the birds in your garden for a, with a cup of tea and a biscuit for an hour. And grab grab the kid or grandkid, as we spoke to an Adrian in the interview. Yes. So, yes. Um, well, enjoy the rest of February, everyone. Oh, February? It's January. January. We're I'll not even to get in the right. February, yeah. oh, I might edit out. I might live in. Um, so enjoy the rest of January and we'll see you next month. Yeah, we'll oh. see, you, see you in February. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.